When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on adverse childhood experiences and trauma. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this segment, we're going to explore the relationship between adverse childhood experiences, hence for referred to as ACEs, and trauma. Identify the impact of ACEs and traumatic injury on mental, physical, and interpersonal health in adults. So what, what are the long-term consequences? And explore risk factors for ACEs and subsequent prevention and intervention measures. So one of the things that I did with this presentation different than other presentations on ACEs that I've done is I really want to connect the dots so we can see or we can start to um, really highlight the impact that ACEs have and how a lot of the symptoms of behavioral health issues that we see in adolescents and adults actually do make sense from a survival standpoint, from a uh, coping standpoint, um, if you will, for a child that was may have experienced ACEs. What are ACEs? You know, just if you haven't heard that, the spiel, let me go over that. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, and we're generally grouped into, or I generally group them into three categories. The first one is family violence, and under family violence is exposure to intimate partner violence, either dating violence or exposure to parents or caregivers that are violent with one another, or child abuse or neglect. So any kind of violence that is within the family or within in intimate relationships falls in that category. Now, the estimation is that 10 million people each year are exposed to family violence. My guess is all of these statistics uh, for mental illness and family violence are far lower than what actually happened. These are only the ones that we know about. 10 million people is still a lot. Family mental illness is the next category. And what we're looking at are mental health or addictive behaviors or addictive illnesses in caregivers, in people in the household. Family mental illness, about 19% of people have a mental health diagnosis. That's about 47 million people. 19% just doesn't sound like too much, but when you round it up to 
just for, for giggles, that's one in five. One in five people, adults, is, according to the CDC, has a mental illness. Substance use disorders, 29%. We'll round that up to 30 just, you know, for round numbers. That's about one in three people have a substance use disorder according at some point in their lives, according to the CDC. That's a lot. That is a lot of people. So we can expect that there are a lot of children that are being born into families in which one or more caregivers has a mental health or an addictive behavior. And then family instability and parental separation. When one of the caregivers uh, goes away, it can be extremely traumatic for the child. If the, if the caregiver goes away to jail, you know, that's a lot. You know, if Tommy is three years old and one of his caregivers goes away to jail for five years, then they're in, well, it's actually prison, but um, if they're in prison for five years, when they get out, he's more than twice as old as he was when they went to prison. And think about how much happens between the age of three and eight. You know, there's a lot of stuff and development that goes on. And think about how much happened prior to the age of three. You know, when in infancy, uh, Tommy may not have really connected as much with uh, certain caregivers. So it's important to recognize that jail can be an adverse childhood experience because that caregiver is basically ripped out of the life of the child. And a lot of times children don't understand why it happened or how it happened. Death, divorce, especially the nasty divorces, um, tend to produce more traumatic injury. Jobs, that make people relocate, if you will, if, especially the military, when people are um, deployed overseas for 18 months or two years or however long they're deployed, that can be very stressful on a child, even in the best of circumstances. Not saying that every child of a service member is experiencing, you know, trauma. No, I'm not saying that. Don't want anybody to assume that. But in some circumstances, especially if the caregiver at home is not able to help the child feel like they're still connected with the caregiver that's overseas, it can be traumatic. And then foster care. When a child is removed from the home for whatever reason, that is obviously an uh, example of family instability. Let's think about this from the perspective of a child. Children may, may not be able to articulate it, but they know somewhere in the back of their primitive brain that they can't survive on their own. They know they need somebody to give them food, to keep them safe, to help them survive. So when they experience these things, it is an intensified threat. When they're witnessing violence, when they're seeing one caregiver, you know, have violence on another caregiver, then we might have uh, a child going, well, what's going to happen if 
one of my caregivers is, is killed or injured. And that's extremely threatening because then the child fe fears not only that the violence is going to be turned on them, but they also fear that they won't be able to survive if one of their caregivers is, is injured or killed. Obviously, child abuse or neglect don't need to explain how that's traumatic. In terms of mental health and addictive behaviors, what we're really looking at is uncontrolled. If you have somebody who has um, recurrent clinical depression or bipolar, depre bipolar disorder and it is well controlled on medication, that's far different than if you have someone who has bipolar disorder or clinical depression that is not controlled and they are just struggling to get through on a day-to-day -day basis. They are struggling to do what they need to do to survive, which means they don't have the energy or even the capacity sometimes to emotionally and or physically connect with that child. Therefore, secure attachments just not developed. They cannot be consistent, responsive, attentive, validating, encouraging, and supportive. They just can't do it. Uh, so we do need to recognize that even when a parent has best intentions, if they are struggling with mental health or addictive issues, including postpartum depression, which both men and women can get, uh, it can impair that attachment relationship. In terms of family instability, parental separation, remember children, especially before the age of like 11, tend to think very concretely. They think about what they can see, what they can manipulate. When they're younger, you know, like preschool and, and, and younger, they tend to also be extraordinarily egocentric and think in dichotomies. It's you know, all good or all bad. And when the parent goes away, the child often tries to make sense of what's going on. They don't understand what happened. What did they, a lot of times they internalize it and they say, what did I do wrong that made this person go away? If it happens during a period where a child is developmentally engaging in a lot of magical thinking, they may think that because they got angry at a caregiver, that that is what caused their illness and death. So we, we want to recognize that people can experience some of these things and have good support um, and have good intervention from the caregivers that are there and not experience significant traumatic injury. But the more of these experiences that someone has, the more likely it is that they are going to have difficulty coping with it. So as service providers, you know, it, it's so important for us to talk about people, to, um, uh, to, to talk about what's going on in their lives, to understand, to hear what's going on and help them figure out how to be able to be good parents with their children at home. If they're really struggling, what can we do to help you? We need to create that recovery oriented system of care where there are a lot of different, um, outlets that parents can tap into caregivers can tap into, um, in order to help them with the whole nurturing process. Parenting is hard work.
Adverse childhood experiences are stressful traumatic events that children experience before age 18. Studies have linked exposure to ACEs and negative health, developmental, and behavioral outcomes. And and again, I want to emphasize the fact that exposure does not necessarily mean injury. A traumatic event is direct or indirect exposure to an event that involved the possibility of death or serious injury to the individual, so to the child, or to someone that is important to the child, like the caregiver. So if they're seeing these things, if they're seeing uh, domestic violence, that qualifies as a, as a uh, traumatic event. You know, obviously, it doesn't take a lot of, it do, it's not a stretch to figure that one out. But traumatic injury refers to the psychological consequences and physical consequences, sometimes experienced after a trauma. 61% of adults surveyed across 25 states, and I don't know why it was just 25 states, but that's just what they did, reported that they had experienced at least one type of ACE, and nearly one in six reported they had experienced four or more types of adverse childhood experiences. So let's just go back up here and look. Four or more. So a, a caregiver that had an addictive behavior, mental health issue, and was involved in a relationship that was violent and maybe uh, was neglectful because of all of the aforementioned things, or mental health and addictive behaviors and the, uh, and then they got divorced because of intimate partner violence. It's not hard to see how people can quickly add up to four or more. And a lot of times, I'm not going to say all the time, but there is a pretty strong correlation between intimate partner violence and mental health and addictive behaviors. So one of the things as behavioral health professionals we can do is advocate for prevention activities. What can we do to help improve the mental health and reduce the addictive behaviors in the adults in our community. And each community is going to be a little bit different. Welcome to the All CEUs Education Channel, where you will find long-form counselor education training videos, as well as shorter overview videos geared toward the general public. We have over 900 videos, so using the search function that is underneath the subscribe button on our homepage can help you find the videos that you really want to watch. You can also find an alphabetized set of some of my most popular playlists at allceus.com slash YouTube dash playlists. I absolutely love hearing from you, so keep those comments coming. We actually do read all of them and try to respond within a few days. Have a fabulous day, and don't forget to click subscribe and the bell if you haven't already so you can be notified when I release new videos. 68 point, oops, sorry. Over 50% of adolescents have been exposed to ACEs, which have detrimental effects on learning and behavior and is associated with increased suicidal ideation. That HPA axis gets activated when the child is exposed to ACEs and experiences traumatic injury, then, you know, there's somewhere in that realm of PTSD. 
you know, maybe they don't qualify for full-blown PTSD, maybe it's subclinical, but they're in that realm. They're, they're on, the, on the continuum, which means they're probably experiencing hypervigilance. They're probably experiencing difficulty sleeping. They're probably experiencing changes in their gut microbiome, which is changing their uh, neurotransmitter balances. So it makes sense that when they're going through this, their neurotransmitters responsible for learning and behavior, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin, are probably going to be out of whack. 50% of adolescents. So let's think about the graduation rate. Let's think about students and whether they, how they do in school. Let's think about what we usually attribute school failure to not trying hard enough, maybe impoverished environments, but a lot of times we don't go back and say, hey, was it a traumatic event that is still continuing to impact this person, this child, this adolescent now? 68% of people who reported homelessness in childhood also reported experiencing four or more ACEs. Now remember, homelessness doesn't necessarily mean living on the street. It could mean sleeping on somebody's couch, um, having to move in with a friend or a family member because you can't afford your own, um, your own dwelling. So homelessness is actually defined as um, sheltered and unsheltered homelessness. But across the, the spectrum, 68% reported four or more adverse childhood experiences. Well, so what leads up to homelessness? Mental health issues, addiction issues, interpersonal violence, um, and, and yes, um, stays in domestic violence shelters when the whole family has to move. Uh, that can qualify, especially if it's sustained. Uh, so there's a lot of, and, and, you know, by virtue of that, by virtue of being homeless, that's often contributes to family instability. Only 16% of people were never homeless in childhood reported experiencing four or more ACEs. So we can really cut down on the number of people experiencing that threshold of four or more ACEs if we start looking at what's causing homelessness in our community. Not everybody who's homeless is mentally ill. Not everybody who's homeless is you know, necessarily struggling. Some people choose to live a more nomadic lifestyle. So we definitely need to be culturally sensitive and not try to put everybody in permanent housing. You know, some people want to travel the world. They don't want to have something that is a permanent house. ACEs have a different impact on the brain based on the age of exposure, individual factors, and microsystem protective factors. Now, um, think back to uh, Broff and Brenner's model. You have your microsystem, which is the individual. What's going on in the individual? What are their, what's their age? What are their coping strategies? What confounding issues do they have? Do, were they, did they already have clinical depression, you know, et cetera? What protective factors did they have? Did they have a lot of social support? Did they have good self-esteem? Did they have, you know, adequate cognitive processing? Uh, so that's the individual. Um, 
in terms of their immediate environment? You know, what was there to provide them support? Did they have a safe place where they could get adequate sleep? We know that lack of adequate sleep contributes to or intensifies the impact of traumatic events. Did they have an environment which they got enough nutrition? We grow based on what we eat. You know, we need to give our body the nutrients. Our body makes neurotransmitters and hormones from the foods that we eat. So if they have an impoverished nutritional environment, then it's often going to contribute to an imbalance in neurotransmitters. All of these things can contribute to changes in brain structure. The strongest impacts are found for younger children ages 2 to 5 and those living in households with incomes below 200% of the federal poverty level. So let me ask you, why is it that the strongest impacts are in this narrow range for children ages 2 to 5 and 200% below the poverty level? When we're thinking about younger children, we know that the child and adolescent brain is much more malleable, much more sensitive to insults than the older, than, than somebody whose brain is fully formed, you know, at about age 24. Um, children ages two to five are very likely, I agree, Dory, uh, likely the ones not eating enough uh, good food and getting enough quality sleep. For infants, a lot of time infants may, they may get agitated, they may get irritable, but it may not impact their sleep as much when children are two to five years old. That's when they're going through, if you think back to Erickson's stages, you have trust versus mistrust. Um, and then you move into toddlerhood when they're trying to develop um, autonomy and a uh, little bit later industry. And they require, when they're trying to navigate this psychosocial crisis, it, it's scary. They're going to try to take chances and it, they require a caregiver that is there to form a secure home base, a caregiver that can nurture them, a caregiver that can encourage them uh, to take that next step. And if they're in an environment where there's a lot of chaos and in an environment in which um, there may be, you know, not enough nutrition, they're not sleeping well, they may be homeless, then the child is probably not going to be developing the secure attachments that would buffer against the stressors. So you've got two... It's a double whammy. Not only is there a trauma there, but there's also a lack of any buffers and, and protective factors. Um, children do need consistency and stability to create stronger connections in their brain, including food, sleep, etc. Uh, and, and this is, is very true. Any of those things that we d discussed as far as ACEs do represent inconsistency. A parent who is clinically depressed may, you know, have good days and bad days. The kid doesn't understand why. So there's not the consistency and they may not consistently get their needs met, you know, back to the trust versus mistrust. Um, so it is definitely important to recognize this. And if a caregiver is not able 
to be attentive and responsive to the child, then at two, from two to five years old, they're not making, or maybe up around five, they start, but you know, two, three years old, they're not making their own cereal and sandwiches and whatever. So they're just, they're hungry. Um, and they're not putting themselves to bed if their caregivers are not putting them to bed. They're just, you know, falling asleep wherever they happen to be. And that would certainly contribute to issues um, between two and five. And, and that's a good hypothesis, Kathy, that uh, children start having or start wanting to communicate, but they are not effective at communicating between two and five. You know, they're still learning words. They're starting to string words together and make sentences, but it's harder for them to communicate what's going on. So a lot of children in this stage, when they're not getting their needs met, instead of being able to use their words, they act out. They throw a temper tantrum. They cry. They withdraw. They do something that in a different situation would elicit the attention of the caregiver. But in this particular situation, it may elicit the anger or the frustration of the caregiver and compound the um, negativity of the situation. When this happens, the child's not getting their needs met. They start to cry. They're fussy. They're irritable. Whatever's going on. Parent gets angry. Children at this age, very egocentric, personalize a lot of things. What did I do? My parent must hate me. Um, so they start internalizing these negative messages that they're responsible for the status of their caregiver. And if they don't, quote, behave, then they're in jeopardy of not having that caregiver be there to take care of them or in jeopardy of abuse. So there are a lot of things that can happen. Um, children ages you two to five, their brain is extremely malleable at this point in time too. So not only do they have needs, not only is the world just, I mean, they're learning everything. They are literally experiencing everything for the first time. So they're getting a lot of input and life can be kind of overwhelming. They can get overstimulated, even with good things. And without a caregiver to help them buffer that, to help them moderate that, the HPA axis can get activated in the child because the child starts feeling nervous and out of control. And that can cause neurodegeneration. ACEs contribute to disturbances in cognitive and affective processing. And this is long-term, not just, you know, in the moment, including heightened attention toward threatening stimuli. If ch children grow up, you know, there was a, um, it's not really a poem, but there was a poster I remember from back when I was little, children learn what they live. And so think about a child growing up in an environment where there is family instability, abuse, neglect, mental health issues, and or addiction. Okay, just kind of think about what that would look like. They grow up with heightened attention toward threatening stimuli. Well, yeah, it was important for them to pay attention to those threats because they had to mitigate them. They had to protect themselves and they had to be super attentive to micro expressions and things of their caregivers if there was violence or um, even 
verbal, you know, verbal aggressiveness, they learned very quickly how to monitor the situation to prevent being on the wrong end of a caregiver's wrath and to try to get their needs met. They started noticing what needed to be done. If, if they noticed that caregiver was starting to, and they obviously wouldn't think decompensate, but I'm going to use that because it's easiest to describe. They may say, okay, why don't caregiver, why don't you sit down and I'll try to make dinner or, and, and you know, little kids, when they try to make dinner, it's usually a disaster, you know, peanut butter and mustard or something. But, um, you know, they try because they're so worried that their caregiver might go away, that they need to be on top of it. They need to notice as early as possible. Increased experience of loneliness leading to isolation and withdrawal. Well, if you're always walking on eggshells, so to speak, if you are hypervigilant a lot of the time, if when you're in, around people, you are hypervigilant, not only to your caregiver's stuff, but to everybody's stuff, you have heightened attention toward threatening stimuli. Well, you're going to see threatening stimuli wherever you are. And that can be exhausting. So it might be easier to just withdraw. You know, I can't take it. I can't shut it off. So I just need to remove myself. There's increased HPA axis dysregulation and reduced impulse control. As that HPA axis is activated and persistently activated, then it starts to become dysregulated. We go into um, what's called the, what I call the flat and the furious. The receptors in the brain start to become resistant to or tolerant to, however you want to think about it, the effects of glutamate and cortisol, your stress hormones. So when the, the HPA axis dumps those, because it's always dumping them, the tissues aren't responsive to it. So the person feels flat a lot of the time. You need norepinephrine, you need glutamate, you need those dopamine in order to feel happy as well as to feel angry and scared. You know, it's kind of interesting. They're involved in anything that gets you revved up. So when the tissues start to become desensitized to it, they're just like, yeah, whatever. Um, then the person doesn't feel much and they start to feel flat. But when a threat is severe enough, the body amps up the amount of cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, being glutamate being secreted, and finally, it gets through. And finally, the tissues pay attention and the neurons pay attention. And they, the person reacts in an exaggerated fashion. Um, and, and I don't like the word exaggerated. And if you can think of another word, please throw it out there. But not saying that they are being overly dramatic, but their body has actually dumped so much excitatory neurochemical stuff that they go from flat to enraged. They go from flat to terrified. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't usually work in the other, in the happy direction where they go from flat to euphoric. Um, but unless they're abusing substances, but, <laughs> uh, 
uh, which is a reason, unfortunately, that they are um, at more risk of addiction. But it, it is interesting to recognize that HPA axis dysregulation, that flatten the furious. Think about the kids that are brought in with uh, behavioral disorders. How many of those are caused by neurological or neurochemical dysfunction? I'll give you the example of um, addiction. You know, let's just start there because the process is basically the same. Um, when somebody abuses a drug, they, they take it and eventually the tissues, um, the, the receptors on the, the, the receptors become desensitized. The brain says, I can't run this hot. I can't keep doing this. There's too much dopamine. There's too much glutamate. There's too much cortisol going through the system. And it's not healthy for this organism. So I need to, you know, just stop paying attention to it. I need to stop um, letting it activate me. And so the tissues become tolerant to the effects of those neurotransmitters. So when somebody's taking a drug of abuse, you know, initially when they drink or use opioids or whatever it is, it produces a euphoric feeling of some type. Um, but after a little while, it doesn't produce that same feeling. It's because the, t the neurons have started to say, you know what? No, I can't. That's too much dopamine going through the system, and it's not healthy, which is a really cool self-preservatory um, thing that our brain does. Unfortunately, then when the person's not using, they're not using whatever substance it is, the amount of cortisol and dopamine and norepinephrine that are going through just naturally, it ain't enough. It's just not enough getting through because the tissues, you know, just don't respond in the same way. So that's where the tolerance comes and the person starts to feel very flat. They feel bad. They feel depressed when, um, when they're not using, which often leads them to use again. Well, and we'll see in a little while that the same thing happens with trauma. When people are exposed to trauma, their HPA axis revs up, cortisol, norepinephrine, and dopamine are released, um, and glutamate. Uh, so those four chemicals are released as part of the stress response because dopamine, remember, is your motivation chemical, your motivation to get up and get the heck out of there. Um, but all of those are excitatory neurotransmitters, and all of those can create a neurotoxic environment if they are present for long enough and in great enough quantities. So the brain says, no, we don't, we can't just keep bathing the neurons in this stuff because it's causing uh, neuronal damage. Uh, so when the person is not uh, engaging in some sort of addictive behavior to artificially stimulate those chemicals, they feel flat. You know, it's kind of like the person with an addiction who's not using. They're just, they're, they're feeling flat. The brain has decided, no, um, I'm protecting myself. But when the stressor gets intense enough, which is why we see emotional dysregulation, for example, in people with borderline personality disorder um, and others, you know, it's not just BPD. The, eventually the brain 
reaches a point where it feels enough of a threat that it just starts dumping immense amounts. And that's a huge overgeneralization. I'm just kind of using a um, analogy here. But sending immense amounts of the excitatory neurochemicals through with people um, who have trauma, who have PTSD, they've shown that the amount of neurotransmitters that are secreted, the amount of neurons that are activated is significantly more in people with trauma than in people uh, who don't have a trauma history, which leads, leads them to believe that, um, that HPA axis dysregulation does cause an extreme reaction uh, to stimuli that someone without trauma may not react as strongly to. Okay, there are also functional alterations in key stress and emotion-associated brain regions, particularly the anterior cingulate cortex, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is one of those areas that's involved in emotional processing. It shrinks. There's, there's, it doesn't do both. It just shrinks. The amygdala is kind of interesting. Remember, the amygdala is where we do a lot of our fear processing. And initially, after a trauma, there's an increase in amygdala volume, which corresponds with training, so to speak, the organism to be more attentive to threat stimuli. However, when there's persistent distress in later life, exposure of those neurons to persistent um, stress chemicals ends up leading to a decrease in volume which also can affect fear processing and reactivity and mood. The brain regions are particularly susceptible to damage from trauma or HPA axis hyperactivation due to the high density of glucocorticoid receptors. Now, glucocorticoids are cortisol, basically, and other chemicals, but the one we're really talking about right now is cortisol. So the amygdala and the hippocampus are just chock full of receptors for stress chemicals. And when it's constantly bathed in stress chemicals, it, the brain starts pruning back, so to speak, those, those neurons. Exposure to specific types of ACEs, and I thought this was really interesting, selectively affect the sensory systems which were involved in perceiving the trauma. So people may not remember what they saw or they may have heightened memories of what they smelled during a particular traumatic event. It's hypothesized that those sensory processes that were involved in the traumatic event will also be um, stronger triggers for PTSD symptoms if the person ends up developing PTSD. Mental disorders in individuals with ACE exposure tend to have more symptom more severe symptomatology, increased risk of comorbidity, and are less likely to respond to standard treatments. So when you have an adult that presents with a behavioral health issue um, who has ACE exposure, they don't respond the way we necessarily would expect. Why do you think that is? I would hypothesize that People who present with clinical depression or generalized anxiety, who 
as adults who didn't have exposure to a multitude of ACEs may not have the structural changes in their hippocampus and amygdala, their fear processing and emotion processing areas that people with ACEs do. So if you want to think about it this way, people with ACEs, not only are they presenting with mental health issues, they're also presenting with traumatic brain injury because the structure, the density of the amygdala and the hippocampus are actually different. There is a change in the brain structure. People with ACEs, um, Melissa points out, um, may also, because they never felt safe or often didn't feel safe in childhood, may not know how to feel safe now, may not feel safe now. And so it may be difficult for them to be vulnerable. Likewise, and, and I'm, I'm in, trying to um, interpret what you said there and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but the symptoms that they have may be longstanding symptoms and they know what to expect with these. And the symptoms, you know, may not lead them to have the happiest life possible, but they have been protective until now. So until we provide them a sense of safety, which we'll get to in trauma-informed approaches, uh, it's going to be hard for them to consider relinquishing some of the protective behaviors that they've developed. Kathy points out it could be that there's... a an addictive-like quality to the trauma, drama, response, and normal feels like, uh, m may feel just kind of, may feel kind of blah. So when they are in, engaging in, when they've got anxiety revving them up, at least they feel something. They're not flat. They're in that furious category. Um, in adults, adverse childhood experiences are associated with a wide range of physical disorders, not just emotional disorders, but also physical disorders, including obesity, dysregulation of the immune system, autoimmune disorders, abnormal pain perception, with and without underlying causes. Stress itself, and, and I thought that was, this is really interesting, stress itself, and we've all experienced it can sensitize pain neurons in the spinal cord, which result in changes in pain perception and related behavior. So the person who experiences a lot of stress may also experience more pain because there are actual changes in the responsivity of their nociceptive, their pain neurons in their spine. Stress itself also reduces uh, certain types of serotonin levels that are responsible for pain perception as well. So there's a lot of things that uh, stress does that can contribute to an increased perception of pain. There's an increase in levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines throughout the body. So when people are under stress, when people have experienced trauma and have a underlying um, sense of unsafeness, that contributes to an underlying sense of stress, the body actually is sending out uh, pro-inflammatory molecules. Disruptions in the intestinal microbiota and the mucosal immune system are also the result of ACEs. 90% of our neurotransmitters are made in our gut. 
So when that intestinal microbiota gets wonky, that means that our gut is not going to be as effective or efficient. And it actually can contribute to what's called leaky gut, where uh, toxins are able to permeate through the intestines, get into the system, uh, get into your, you know, your general system, which causes more inflammation. Two to 400% increased risk, two to 400% increased risk of heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, skeletal fractures, depression, diabetes, and prediabetes, and liver disease. They have found that there is an autoimmune connection with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, which, so it would make sense that that could be in part a stress-related condition. We know that cancer is strongly associated with inflammation, and inflammation is associated with stress. Um, heart disease is the same. So you can see how it's not just, you know, somebody developing PTSD, and that's the only thing that's going on. Generally, if somebody has experienced traumatic events and a traumatic injury, there are going to be corresponding physiological how do these behaviors make sense for somebody who has experienced adverse childhood experiences? You know, they come to your office as a 20, 30, 40 something year old person and are evidencing these behaviors. How might or why might they have developed? Uh, so let's think about or let's talk about how these behaviors make sense from the perspective of somebody who's experienced abuse, neglect, abandonment, and insecure attachment, basically is what it comes down to. Starting with the first one, avoidance and withdrawal. You know, we talked about that a little bit on the prior slide, that people who are hypervigilant to threats in the environment, especially, may have difficulty filtering out stimuli so being around other people, being around in, in, in new situations can be extremely overwhelming and extremely exhausting for them. So it may be self-preservatory to just withdraw, to stay at home, to be in an environment where they're not bombarded. Uh, so one of the things that we want, we may want to look at, well, with, uh, addressing these issues is helping the person desensitize or start being able to feel safer so they don't have to, so they don't feel like they have to be on guard all the time. Feeling detached from others makes sense. When you grow up in an environment where there's abuse, neglect, and or the caregiver is emotionally unavailable, you may not have learned or the person may not have learned how to attach to others. So they may feel detached. They may also have developed that as a protective mechanism, just detaching from those caregivers, detaching from anyone, not caring about other people because it's too dangerous. People that you care about hurt you or disappoint you or abandon you so it's easier to just not attach at all. Chronic empty feelings kind of goes back to that flatness. Uh, when 
people are stressed for a long time when that HPA axis is dysregulated, not only is it harder to have enough, you know, dopamine and, and cortisol and glutamate to get angry or anxious, it's hard, hard to have enough of those excitatory neurochemicals to really care about anything. So there's a flatness. There's also a sense of emptiness that in, in a lot of people that they just don't know what they want to do. They don't know what's going to make them happy. Well, that makes sense because it's so hard for them to feel anything. Substance misuse. Well, substance misuse is an artificial way. It's an exogenous way to increase those excitatory neurotransmitters. You use alcohol, you use opioids, you use um, stimulants, you're going to increase the levels of dopamine and as well as other neurochemicals in the system, which can contribute to feeling, you know, not necessarily just feelings of pleasure, but feeling, going from that state of feeling empty and flat and numb, apathetic to feeling something. Emotional lability goes back to that dysregulation. The HPA axis has a real hard time uh, controlling itself, regulating itself anymore. Um, if you've ever been stuck in the mud, maybe this analogy will make more sense. And, you know, you think you're getting a little bit of traction and you're just, you're stuck. You can't go forward. So you're flooring it. And all of a sudden you peel out. That is what we're talking about with the flat and the furious. That is what we're talking about with emotional lability sometimes. Because people who've experienced childhood trauma or trauma um, often don't feel unsafe or don't feel safe. They often have a lot of undercurrents of stress. So they may be able to feel happy-ish if they can. They may be able to put on this facade that things are going okay most of the time. But when something goes wrong, it is a big deal. It is a huge, you know, dump. All of a sudden, they are peeling out of that mud puddle. There's a pervasive negative emotional state or apathy. Well, we talked about that. When you are, when you are hypervigilant to negative stimuli in the environment, think about the mood you're going to be in. I mean, it just makes sense. Persistent and elevated negative evaluations about yourself, others, and the world. Remember when a lot of these happen, these adverse childhood experiences happened, the person was it that at an age where they tended to think concretely, where they tended to be self-referential, personalizing a lot of what was going on. So they may have internalized, I must have done something wrong. I must be bad. But also as they get older and they start having more advanced forms of thinking, think your Piaget development, developmental stages, they start also recognizing that others are scary, are dangerous, or even malicious. There can be elevated self-blame or blame of others as a result. Difficulty concentrating. You need norepinephrine and dopamine to concentrate. 
If your body has already decided, you know what? No, we can't, we're, we're not going to be, we're not going to pay attention to the dopamine and the norepinephrine that, that are trying to get through because we need to protect ourselves. Then that the normal amount of dopamine and norepinephrine that's going through a person's brain isn't going to produce enough down downstream, if you will, to allow the person to concentrate and focus. So this is why you start seeing issues like ADHD, which is a dysfunction mainly they're finding now in norepinephrine, but with a little bit of dopamine involvement sometimes. Um, concentration, dopamine and norepinephrine are your two big neurochemicals there. Impulsive or self-destructive. Well, if you have a lot of emotional lability, impulsivity may be a reaction to protect yourself, you know, getting angry and throwing something, hitting something in for, uh, children, you know, they may bite or, you know, be unkind to other children on the playground. Self-destructive behavior. Let's look at what is going on. What is the function of this behavior? Is it helping the person feel something? Is it helping the person, you know, get some of those neurochemicals going, or is it serving to protect the person in some way? Efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Okay, we already talked about that. Uh, a comp compulsive desire for attention. Well, that goes along with efforts to avoid abandonment. If the child feels fearful that they're going to be abandoned by their caregivers, then they may do whatever they need to do to try to ingratiate themselves, to try to get that caregiver's attention, to get that caregiver's love, to avoid abandonment. Because abandonment to a two-year-old means destruction. I mean, a two-year-old cannot pay the rent and make their own meals. Hypersensitivity to criticism. Well, it makes sense. If you fear abandonment, if you've got a compulsive desire for attention, usually positive attention, and efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, then criticism is the antithesis. Criticism is the exact thing that you might be afraid is going to cause abandonment. So people become hypersensitive. Manipulative behavior. Well, children can learn this. And a lot of times the manipulative behavior, it's not... They're not overtly thinking, how can I manipulate this person to make them do what I want? They learn that if, if I do X, then they do Y. And it's a, um, automatic sort of process. If I throw a temper tantrum in the store, then we get to go home. They've experienced the reward that they want from that. Ergo, they're going to engage in that behavior again to try to get the same result. The child doesn't think, you know, how can I manipulate mom? The child may think, if I throw a tantrum, we get to go home. Um, unstable and extreme interpersonal relationships. When you're in a relationship with somebody who is fearful, frantically trying to avoid abandonment, 
compulsively needs attention and reassurance, is hypersensitive to criticism, and may engage in inadvertent manipulation, it's probably going to put a strain on relationships. And those relationships can be extreme because of the fear of abandonment. They may perceive them as more intimate than they really are, just hoping that this person is going to love them. Chronic pain. Well, we already talked about how stress can cause increases in pain. We've also talked about how stress and trauma can cause increases in inflammation and inflammation causes pain. So there you go. Sleep disturbances. If you don't feel safe, if your stress response system, if your HPA axis is constantly kind of on in the background, you're not probably going to get good quality sleep. Um, if you're not getting proper nutrition, you're probably not going to make enough uh, serotonin to make melatonin to get good quality sleep. So there's sleep disturbances. When you don't feel safe, it's difficult to get sleep. If you are, and a lot of people may not understand why they don't feel safe or why they have a hard time relaxing. And that's something we can help them explore. What does that mean? Inability or unwillingness to empathize. And, you know, a lot of times in diagnose, diagnostic areas, it talks about unwillingness to empathize. I, I like to look at it as potentially inability. If somebody grows up in an environment in which they are just overwhelmed by the negativity and the powerful emotions of their caregivers and everyone around them, it may be, they may never have learned how to empathize because it was too dangerous. If they opened them up, opened themselves up and tried to empathize, it was just too overpowering. So it's like, nope, I just, I, I got to set these really rigid emotional boundaries that can prevent them from being vulnerable um, in future relationships. And they may, we have to learn how to empathize. It's not something we're really born with. Um, and, and, or it, it comes along, but we really nurture it in children. And it, it's helpful if when children are egocentric, we help them learn to take other people's perspectives. So thinking about all of these, if you look at them, if you think back to your DSM, these are the criteria for a fair number of personality disorders, as well as substance misuse and mood disorders. So I think it's important to recognize that a lot of our uh, behavioral health issues that we see in the DSM, as well as some physical issues like sleep disturbance and chronic pain, and you'll learn later today, obstructive sleep apnea, can actually be caused by or exacerbated by trauma. So what do we do? Interventions. We want to create safe, stable, nurturing relationships because those are a pillar for health. People need others. Trauma-informed intergenerational practices are needed in clinical early care, like early childhood care, daycare, those sorts of things, educational and community contexts. So think about how can we alter the current systems, the educational system, the daycare system, the um, community 
I don't, I don't know what to call it, the community system where children are raised until they start going to daycare or, or school, um, how can we alter these systems to help everyone recognize, realize the widespread impact of trauma and the multiple paths of recovery? You know, some people need to get their physical stuff under control first and then work on their behavioral health. Others need to work on behavioral health and physical at the same time. Um, you know, we want to look at that. Not everybody is going to display trauma in the same way. Some people may display trauma as an autoimmune disorder. That doesn't mean it's not, they didn't experience trauma, but their path for recovery is going to look very different than someone who's primary presenting diagnosis is PTSD for that early childhood trauma or ADHD. You know, we know that it can contribute to ADHD. We want to think about how can we help people in the community, teachers, clergy, daycare workers, um, parents, pediatricians, you know, counselors, how can we help people recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma in individuals and others involved in the system? And then once we recognize it, what do we do with it? I work with a lot of clergy here in Tennessee and, you know, they do a lot of counseling. I mean, that's a big part of their job. And they interact with people on the daily who have experienced trauma and, a lot of times they don't recognize how all of the person's physical as well as mental health issues and spiritual issues might all be connected. Once they start recognizing that these may be signs of trauma, a lot of times, a lot of clergy that I've worked with don't feel like they have the tools to be able to fully help somebody process you know, PTSD or um, other trauma-related issues. Some of them do, but some of them don't. And so how do we respond uh, to those things? If Sally experienced trauma as a child and she's now having difficulty with parenting and her relationship with her spouse and she's experiencing, you know, and she has fibromyalgia, you know, let's just, and she goes to her pastor and says, Pastor Bob, you know, I'm really struggling right now. And this is everything that's going on. Well, Pastor Bob may not see the connection between those two. But if he does, then what is the policy? Does Pastor Bob know who he can refer to? Does Pastor Bob know what the next step might be in order to help Sally process the, what's causing all of this stuff. And four is resists re-traumatization. Re and that really comes from two words, safety and empowerment, which takes us to the six key principles. We want to make sure that people feel safe, respected in whatever environments they're in, whether it's school, daycare, church, community organizations, work, wherever, jail, 
Um, we want to make sure that people feel respected. When they don't feel safe, they are going to tend to be more emotionally reactive. And they're going to tend to probably experience more dysregulation because that HPA axis goes into overdrive. In order to help people feel safe and empowered, we have trustworthiness and transparency. We need to make sure that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. And we're as transparent as possible about what we're doing and why. And that goes for medical professionals as well as, you know, everybody else. And, and medical professionals, unfortunately, is one of the areas that I see some of the least trauma-informed uh, behavior, which is really unfortunate. Um, peer support. It's important that people feel connected to others who've experienced similar things when they're going through the recovery process. Now, not everybody is going to acknowledge or identify that what happened when they were five is impacting them today. And that's okay. That's part of the empowered. We can educate, but then we need to let the client lead. Um, but if they are struggling with fibromyalgia, for example, Peer support can be very helpful because that can help them integrate what's going on. Collaboration and mutuality, again, helping the person feel respected is important. We don't want to tell them what to do. We don't want to tell them what we are going to do with them. Uh, we want to ask them, you know, is it okay if I, would it feel okay if I, what would you think if uh, we, we really want to get their input and in anything involving them, we want to get permission. We don't want to be doing things to them because a lot of times that is part and parcel of their prior trauma. Empowerment, voice, and choice kind of goes along with collaboration and mutuality. These six key principles came from uh, SAMHSA. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stick to them to fidelity, but we do want to make sure that people feel empowered to collaborate with us and participate in their treatment planning, participate in creating an environment that feels safe. And cultural, historical, and gender issues, paying attention to how different cultures view depression, trauma parenting. You know, there are a lot of cultural differences that need to be taken into consideration. Likewise, we need to consider how much that person is, uh, has embraced any particular culture. They may be from Panama. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have fully um, embraced that culture. Um, they may be acculturated to a, a different culture. So we need to communicate and give voice to the client to help them figure out or communicate to us what would be the most helpful course of action for them. Um, and, and to your question, uh, Sheila, I am not sure about the answer to that um, in terms of whether uh, autism spectrum disorders are related to adverse childhood experiences, but I will certainly look that up on the next break. Mindfulness-based mind-body approaches have been shown to reduce trauma-related presenting symptoms by over 30%. That's a lot. 
And the good thing is it doesn't require you going to any sort of two-week training and certification and uh, anything else. Um, so that is a good thing. It's something that we can all implement pretty, pretty quickly. What we're looking at is mindfulness, purposeful moment-by-moment -moment present and self-awareness of breathing, body sensations, emotions, and thoughts in a non-judgmental ma manner incorporated into something like biofeedback. You know, let's practice um, watching your heart rate as you pay attention to your breathing and your body sensations. Notice how when you feel a certain way, what does your pulse do? And it can either be just feeling their pulse or it can be with an activity tracker or a, a heart rate monitor strap, whatever. Um, but people will start seeing how different things actually impact them. One of the activities I have some of my clients do is wear a, a chest strap that, from, that, that monitors their heart rate. And they set the upper and lower bounds on their watch. So when their heart rate goes below or above that zone, they get alerted by, by, the, by the watch. And the interesting thing is that a lot of times they don't realize how much heart rate variability they've got during the day. They don't realize how many stressors they actually experience until their wrist is buzzing constantly throughout the day. So it's an interesting activity for people who may not be um, as, as self-aware of some of these things. And it really forces them into kind of not constant mindfulness, but brings them to a place where they need to be mindful. When that thing starts buzzing, they need to breathe and slow their breathing down to lower their heart rate to get it back into that whatever zone it was that we set them at. And I usually, I find their resting heart rate, whatever that is, and then the upper bound, I have them, you know, walk around my office just at a leisurely pace, like they would walk around the office. And whatever that heart rate is, I tack five beats a minute on top of that just to give a little bit of wiggle room. And that's what I use for the upper and lower bounds. I obviously don't want it going off when they're just walking to get some coffee or something, but I want it going off if they are experiencing a trigger, if you will, of their HPA axis. I find that one can be very effective for a lot of people to start becoming more aware of, of the different um, things going on. Guided imagery can also be very helpful if people are noticing their breathing um, during guided imagery yoga, or yoga or even meditation, that can be super helpful. Greater self-awareness is one of the benefits of mindfulness because people can start acting proactively. Instead of waiting, like people who have anger management issues, instead of waiting until they're enraged, when they start to become more mindful, they start to notice when their heart rate is starting to climb, when their blood pressure is starting to go up, when they're starting to grind their teeth, whatever their triggers or cues are, and they can intervene earlier and be more proactive instead of waiting until 
the the culminating event and only acting reactively. Additionally, being more mindful can help people develop strategies to reduce HPA axis hyperactivation. So they can start noticing, oh, you know, every time I have to go into my boss's office, my heart rate goes through the roof. Okay. Well, that's something that we can work on. So when you interact with your boss, you don't have that theoretically unnecessary hyperactivation of your HPA axis. More than 60% of people have experienced ACEs. It's believed that the rate of exposure to ACEs has increased significantly in the past five years. I just kind of think about what's been going on in the past five years. Now, there are other times like during um, the Vietnam War, um, Korea, other times when there's been a lot of social unrest um, where there were a lot of ACEs going on. But you know, there, there's been a lot and there's been, well, we'll get to moral injury later, but a lot of, well, a lot of people who are children right now, their parents may have experienced trauma and moral injury that contributed to them developing mental health issues and having difficulty res being responsive to their children. Not everyone who experienced ACEs will de de develop traumatic injury. Injuries related to ACE trauma include the development of personality disordered behaviors, like especially borderline, histrionic, antisocial, and dependent. If you look at the characteristics of those and couch it from the perspective of how would this make sense? How would these behaviors make sense to help someone survive a traumatic childhood? Mood disorders, PTSD, addictions. Autoimmune issues, including IBS, Crohn's disease, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, liver disease, increased in difficulty in interpersonal relationships because of the above issues, and increased risk to become a perpetrator. I don't like that word, but uh, of ACEs. People who develop ACEs uh, and develop some of these issues may end up being the caregiver in that environment that is, has emotional lability and can be um, verbally abusive or has a mood disorder or an addiction. So you can see how there may be an intergenerational transmission of ACEs. Are there any questions about ACEs before we move on? Okay, so we're going to go ahead and dovetail right on into um, adult health. That way we make sure that we get through everything in a timely fashion. So this presentation is on PTSD and adult health. We're going to explore the comorbidities in adult health with PTSD. So what health conditions might we expect to see in people who've experienced trauma or who have PTSD? The lifetime prevalence of trauma is 60% in men and 51% in women, which we generally expect it to be flip-flopped, but um, that's not what the data says. So... The most common forms of trauma resulting in PTSD included unexpected death of someone close, sexual assault, serious illness or injury to self or someone close, serious car accident, 
having a child with a serious illness, a terrorist attack, or a natural disaster. Let's think about those. Normally, when we think of PTSD, we think of something like uh, war trauma or being the victim of a violent crime. Um, but there are a lot of other things that can lead to a sense of helplessness and horror and the threat of serious injury or loss of life. So we do want to consider that these things. And we also want to consider the impact of whatever it is and the age of the person impacted. Something like an unexpected death of someone close may pro and probably has a different impact on someone who's 35 as opposed to someone who's five. Uh, so we do want to recognize that brain development, cognitive development, uh, and just number of years on this planet and experiences may, may serve to buffer or may actually impair, if they've already got traumatic experiences, the reaction. Serious car accidents. You know, we want to recognize, and for, for some people, there are some studies that I read, you know, when people have a heart attack, it, some people who have heart attacks end up developing post-traumatic stress because of the severity of the illness, the fact that they almost died, you know, all that sort of thing. In complex PTSD, now this is PTSD that develops as a result of exposure to multiple traumas or repeated traumas over a period of time, domestic violence, child abuse, and we do see complex PTSD in law enforcement, fire rescue, military. In complex PTSD, structural abnormalities in the brain seem to be more extensive than in PTSD in which there was a single trauma. Uh, and brain activity in complex PTSD is also strikingly different from the brain activity seen in people who experienced a single trauma. So this ongoing exposure, this ongoing lack of safety, this ongoing threat tends to disrupt neural connections and the way the brain actually works in a different way. Remember in the, in the last uh, class, we talked about how the amygdala, when it's initially exposed to trauma, increases in size. But over, over a lifetime, over a time span, if exposure to traumatic experiences, stressful experiences continues, then the amygdala actually starts to shrink. So we do see that the brain alters its actual structure as a result of exposure or non-exposure to trauma. Let's think about 2021 um, or 2020, if you will. There seems to be an increase in PTSD related to the pandemic seeing people get sick, having people suddenly die, having people that you love have to go in the hospital, not being able to be there with them and having them pass away by themselves. You know, there were a lot of things that happened in 2020 that were extraordinarily traumatic for a lot of people uh, that were related to the pandemic. Uh, 
so it is important to recognize that. It's also important to recognize how many ACEs occurred because of the pandemic. Um, intergenerational PTS. Now, notice I dropped the D off of it. Uh, when people experience PTSD, uh, they, and, and it goes unresolved, they may carry forward some of that hypervigilance. They may carry forward some of those, the negative um, impressions of themselves and the world. They may carry forward, you know, the PTSD symptoms. Those are communicated to their children. Their children grow up hearing those messages, hearing how the world is an unsafe place and feeling unsafe and afraid which, you know, can create PTS in those children. And those children may grow up and be hypersensitive or hypervigilant to threat trauma. So intergenerational PTS and intergenerational ACEs are really a thing. So it is important that we advocate for caregivers to make sure that if they're experiencing symptoms, that they have a way to address them. And then the last one, I didn't know what to call it, uh, cultural PTS. There have been a lot of things that have happened in the past um, five years, maybe even 10 years, that have created a lot of trauma for a lot of people in the American culture. And, you know, you, you don't have to go far on social media to find people who um, are experiencing a lot of distress as a result of things that are going on in the world. So it's important to also recognize that, you know, there is a lot of stuff and media and social media, unfortunately, keeps that wound right in your face. I was so grateful when um, the news channels decided to take down uh, the, what I called the death counters. Because every time I saw those, it just stressed me out and it increased my levels of anxiety. Um, and, you know, that, that had to do with the pandemic. But remembering that, that there is a lot that is out there on, you know, from multiple perspectives. And we need to help people examine the cultural stress that they may be experiencing. And we'll talk about that more in um, uh, moral trauma and moral stress when we get to the, to the last section. People with PTSD, not surprisingly, have higher rates of mood disorders, um, especially if they have prolonged PTSD. Now, that's not necessarily complex PTSD. That's people who've had PTSD for a long time and it's gone untreated. Well, think about it. What are the symptoms of PTSD? Hypervigilance, intrusion, uh, uh, intrusive memories, feelings of unsafeness, you know, basically. Well, if you feel this way a lot, then yeah, it's probably going to contribute to anxiety and depression. That's really not a stretch. There are two types of responses to traumatic reminders of the stressors, though. They're, and they've actually differentiate, differentiated two different subtypes of PTSD, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
DPTSD people tend to overmodulate their emotions um, and, and they t- tend to distance from their emotions, as opposed to patients who primarily suffer from re-experiencing symptoms, including hyperarousal, intense feelings of shame, and difficulties in emotion downregulation. Um, so DPTSD people tend to be in the more numbing category, whereas the other type of PTSD um, may have a lot more in common with people with borderline personality symptoms. And and I put the word symptoms on the end of it because it's so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Stigmatized to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. You know, we really want to look at what symptoms is the person, um, do, do they have? What function are those symptoms serving right now? Where did they come from? And, you know, what is going on? A lot of people in addiction recovery, for example, in early recovery, often have a lot of emotional dysregulation and um, dichotomous thinking and, you know, a lot of the characteristics of um, BPD. However, once they have some recovery time under their belt, as we say, a lot of those symptoms seem to remit some once they start to feel safer and feel more empowered in their situation. PTSD is positive related to negative emotionality. Makes sense. Neuroticism. I don't like the term. That's another one that's gotten a really bad rap in um, just general language. Neuroticism, as we're using it, is one of the big five personality uh, characteristics and refers to dysregulation, hypervigilance, or the degree to which a person believes the world is distressing, threatening, or unsafe. Well, if you've got PTSD, then yeah, and you're still experiencing those symptoms, then yeah, there's a good chance that these characteristics are going to be present. Harm avoidance, self-transcendence, hostility, anger, and anxiety. So as PTSD symptoms go up, these things go up as well. And a lot of these are actually kind of just synonyms for a lot of the PTSD symptoms, in my opinion. But um, now PTSD symptoms are negatively associated. So as these symptoms go up, PTSD symptoms go down. Um, they're negatively associated with extroversion, the ability, willingness, desire of a person to interact with others, to get social support, conscientiousness, self-directedness. So being able to set goals and accomplish them, which helps people develop a sense of um, empowerment and self-efficacy. High positive emotionality. So as PTSD symptoms go down, mood goes up. Go figure it. Hardiness and optimism. Now, hardiness was proposed by Kobasa in 78, I believe. um, And it's composed of three characteristics, commitment, control, and challenge. Commitment refers to a person being able to look not at just one aspect, but broadly at their life and say, these are all the things that are important in my life. 
And I'm committed to all these things. I'm committed to my job. I'm committed to my kids. I'm committed to my pets. I'm committed to my hobbies, you know. And at any point in time, one or more of these things may not be going the best, but I'm committed to all of them. And I recognize that I can have a rich and meaningful life and experience some distress. So there's a commitment and recognition that all your eggs aren't in one basket, so to speak. Control is the belief or awareness of the aspects of situations that you can and cannot control. So someone recovering from a heart attack uh, or open heart surgery, there are a lot of studies done with hardiness and open heart surgery. The ones who were able to view their life and say, okay, well, maybe I can't do this anymore because I had this heart attack, but all of these other things that are important to me, I can still do. So, or I can do with modification and that's important. I'm committed to those things. They recognize control. I can't undo the heart attack. I can't, you know, maybe I can't run a marathon anymore or whatever it is they did. They recognize that's out of their control, but what's in their control? Following their recovery program, taking their medication, eating a healthy diet, you know, all the things they're supposed to do that can allow them to be able to engage with the things that are important, that they're committed to. And then C, the final C stands for challenge. Instead of viewing recovery from a heart attack or recovery from PTSD or life in general as an obstacle and overwhelming and oppressive, viewing it as a challenge, thinking, okay, that's fine. How am I going to do this? Having a more optimistic attitude and a more empowered and efficacious attitude is the third component of hardiness. And I think in cognitive behavioral approaches, uh, there are a lot of these things that we can increase in people. Now, extroversion, you know, a little note on that, people who are normally you know, temperamentally introverts are not going to want to often be going to big support group meetings and everything. Extroversion for them may mean having one or two people that they're reaching out to and connecting with. So we do want to recognize and be sensitive to individual differences, but we can help people enhance their self-directedness, their ability to set goals, their um, self-efficacy. And, and self-esteem, all of those things that we can do, we can help them enhance their level of hardiness. And hardiness is kind of at the core, if you will, of acceptance and commitment therapy. Sleep dysfunction. 70 to 91% of individuals with PTSD report sleep disturbances. That's a lot, especially since we know that sleep disturbances are directly correlated to um, HPA axis activation, increases in inflammation, co difficulties with cognitive uh, functioning, depression, and anxiety. So sleep is important. Uh, the most common sleep disturbances in PTSD are insomnia, nightmares, and obstructive sleep apnea. Now, this, this is where it gets interesting. Sleep disorders contribute to major depression, substance use, impaired daytime functioning, negative long-term health consequences, and suicide risk. We don't want to minimize sleep disorders. Insomnia, 
may precede the trauma and predict the development of PTSD. So people who had insomnia prior to the trauma are at greater risk of traumatic injury of developing PTSD after exposure to a trauma than people who were well-rested and did not have insomnia. So that's one of those things that we now know is a risk factor that we can actually ask about. Prior to the trauma, did you have insomnia? Were you sleeping well? SSRIs and SNRIs, so selective serotonin and selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants, are commonly recommended as first-line treatments for PTSD, but the effects of SSRIs or SNRIs on sleep are typically modest or even adverse since they disrupt REM sleep. Remember, you have three phases of sleep. You have light sleep where you're easily awakened, you're just dozing, REM where you're dreaming, and uh, deep sleep in which your, your body cleaning crew is going through and clearing out all of the adenosine from your brain and all of as much of the um, free radicals and everything as it can. Deep sleep is really important, uh, but REM sleep does have a place. Benzodiazepines are not advised because of their risk of tolerance, abuse, and worsening of obstructive sleep apnea. Trazodone has been shown to promote sleep and reduce nightmares in PTSD and depressed patients and may be particularly helpful for patients with concurrent PTSD, alcohol use, and obstructive sleep apnea. So for some reason, trazodone, which is a uh, serotonin agonist and reuptake inhibitor, uh, doesn't seem to have the same effects on um, obstructive sleep apnea as some other medications. Uh, CPAP therapy, which is what they use with obstructive sleep apnea, has produced small but consistent decreases in PTSD severity at 12 weeks. CPAP therapy for people with obstructive sleep apnea has been shown to produce so many positive effects. It reduces, it improves mood, reduces depression. Um, it re evidently um, reduces PTSD symptoms as well. It's also been shown to reduce inflammation and severity of autoimmune sim symptoms. When people are repeatedly, rem remember with obstructive sleep apnea, people are basically stopping breathing multiple times throughout the night. When you do this, your body's reaction, it says, crap, we're not breathing, we need to breathe. So the HPA axis, that stress response system, kicks into gear and, you know, prompts you to, you know, start breathing again. It's like, hey, wake up. Um, so when people are, have obstructive sleep apnea, they are contributing to additional stress on that HPA axis. People with PTSD have a much higher rate of autoimmune disorders. Makes sense. If they're not sleeping well, that's going to contribute to inflammation. If they're stressed, that contribute, we know that contributes to inflammation. If we have depression, well, we don't know if that causes inflammation or is a result of inflammation, but we know the two co-occur. Um, autoimmune disorders, the main diagnostic feature is inflammation. So people with PTSD do have higher rates of autoimmune disorders. They also have higher rates of coronary and, and 
uh, cardiovascular disease, but it's interesting that it also works in the other direction. About 10 to 20% of people develop PTSD following acute coronary syndrome, so heart attack mainly. Um, PTS symptoms increase the risk of adverse cardiovascular events as a result of dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. So all of those things that we normally do automatically, like breathing um, and heart rate, are dysregulated to a certain extent with PTSD. Um, dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary axis, that HPA axis, oxidative stress, and inflammation. So PTSD really gets in there and upsets the apple cart, which causes, it doesn't just correlate with, they've shown that it increases the risk significantly of cardiovascular diseases, cardiovascular problems, because of these um, physiological effects of stress. Addiction. And I want you to think about the paradox of trauma processing in substance abuse treatment as, as we go through this. Addiction can be used to self-medicate trauma or trauma symptoms. You know, that is the first thing that a lot of us, you know, go to with addiction is something of a self-medication hypothesis. Okay, well, that's true. Trauma affects the dopaminergic pathways in ways that largely mimic the effect of addictive drugs, causing increased dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. I told you we would get to this. So what that's saying, even though in trauma, people are not experiencing euphoria like they do with drugs, in trauma, when that HPA axis is activated, our body wants us to be motivated to fight or flee. So there's a dump along with glutamate, norepinephrine, and adrenaline of dopamine. So it's not as important why the dopamine's dumped, but the fact that a bunch of dopamine is being dumped in the nucleus accumbens. So the same tolerance develops in addiction, you know, and, and that was the, the analogy I used earlier, because we're, deal we're talking about the same neurotransmitter here. We're talking about dopamine. And regardless of why it's dumped, whether it's because of a traumatic experience or because of drug use... If the brain is bombarded with too much dopamine for too long, it starts um, becoming resistant. Another analogy that may make more sense, sometimes we talk about lock and key, and neurotransmitters are the keys, and your receptors are the locks, the doors. And when there's too much dopamine going through, when the, the locks are constantly being bombarded by the dopamine, eventually the locks stop working. So there are fewer doors, if you will, for the dopamine to go through. And that's kind of the body's way of saying, okay, you know, if we're really tired, we can't have all this going through. Uh, but it is interesting. Stress enhances the effects of drug-related cues. Well, that makes sense. Because stress, just like trauma, increases the release of dopamine because we want to be motivated. Stress is kind of the garbage term for fight or flee, HPA axis activation. So stress increases the amount of dopamine that's available, which makes us makes people more um, aware of drug-related cues. And when people are more aware of drug-related cues, 
then the body says, oh, I remember that. That was a good thing. And so they start having increased cue-induced cravings, um, and, which can lead to reinstatement of drug self-administration. So people have a little stress, causes a little bit of dopamine to be in the, in the, um, in the body. Then that starts to be related to other things that remind them of when they had a whole lot more dopamine and it can lead to cravings. Repeated or prolonged exposure to stress can also recapitulate some of the core pathophysiology of addictions, including sensitization of the dopaminergic response, which is what we've been talking about, having those um, locks stop working. The, the brain becomes sensitized to the effects of the key, if you will. So there's a paradox here. Uh, a lot of people with addiction have trauma, and a lot of people with trauma have addiction. Not everybody in either condition. But when you have somebody who has addiction and trauma, we know that trauma mimics the addictive, um, the dopamine release, like when somebody is using, not to the same extent, obviously. So the question is, do you process trauma in people who are recovering from addiction? And some people might say, well, no, if stress is go going to enhance their cravings, then processing trauma would add stress. So we don't want to do that. And in actuality, that's not correct. Um, if the PTSD symptoms are still existing, if the PTSD is not under control, um, then the person already has stress. So when they are clean, they are going to have more cravings because of that underlying stress. So we need to help them deal with it, which is why concurrent treatment is so important. But it's also important to recognize if you're working with somebody who is in outpatient in addiction recovery, that the timing of the processing of these things how quickly you go, what their um, emergency plans are, need to be planned out very, very carefully because processing trauma can set them up for being vulnerable to relapse. Not to say it shouldn't be done. It needs to be done because ultimately if it doesn't get processed, it often leads to relapse. But um, it is important to make sure that it is done with care, especially in outpatient settings where the person has access to their drug of choice. Psychiatric disorders that are comorbid with alcohol use disorders, such as PTSD, major depressive disorder, and other substance use disorders may also have underlying neuroimmune mechanisms. I thought that was interesting. Um, so neuroimmune mechanisms, meaning targeting the immune system. And one of the things that they've started to recognize is the cannabinoid 2 receptor or your CB2 receptor is one of the receptors in the endocannabinoid system. And it actually is mainly in the immune system. CB2 dysfunction is involved in mood disorders they're not sure exactly how, but they know when the CB2 receptors are not activated enough, it leads to problems. Or when they're overactivated, it also leads to problems. But they're also finding that um, su substance use disorders, as well as PTSD and 
and mood disorders have neuroimmune underpinnings, and they're thinking it may have something to do with the CB2 receptor. We do see more abuse of benzodiazepines in people with PTSD. Benzodiazepines are your anti-anxiety medications. PTSD, people tend to have anxiety. So it makes sense that that might be a self-medicating step that that they may take. But unfortunately, the benzos are um, extremely addictive, and sometimes they're used in... um, certain populations to enhance sleep and and reduce insomnia. But as we mentioned earlier, there are other options that seem to be a lot more effective now and have less risk of adverse outcomes. Opioid pretreatment robustly augments associative fear learning in the amygdala, although these changes were not observed when opioids were given after the trauma. That's another really important thing. So when people had opioids in their system before the trauma, it enhanced their fear processing. That's not what we want. Um, But when somebody was given opioids after the traumatic event, it didn't seem to enhance their fear processing and fear memory consolidation. So... You know, that's just an interesting little note, but if you work with people who use, because some people um, legit have to be on opioids for chronic pain, so people who use or people who abuse opioids, um, they may have a more intense fear response or traumatic response to a trauma um, if they were under the influence of opioids at the time. Something just to kind of put in the in the back of your in the back of your mind for clients that you're working with and this is true for clients who are on suboxone buprenorphine and methadone as well